we are going to unite and level up. I will lead this great party into a new era. You are fake news. Hello and welcome back to Politics Mad. It's been a slightly slower week in politics this week, but we've still got some really interesting stuff to talk about. Primarily on the domestic front, Rishi Sunak's spending review. There's also the SNP's conference going on today, so we'll talk about that as well. Ra, what's been going on on the international front this week? So internationally, it's been a relatively quiet week compared to the previous weeks that we've had. However, there's been a significant development in the Middle East. Uh, Mohsen Faradik uh, has he's a top Iranian nuclear scientist. He was assassinated. Yes, he was assassinated a few days ago, and this has wide implications for the region. Also, Ethiopia. Allegedly, the government troops have captured the rebel capital now. What does this mean in terms of how this conflict will go forward? Will it go forward at all, even? Lots to discuss. Right then, we'll jump straight in because I've got a lot of numbers to throw around here. We might spend a little bit of time talking about what Rishi Sunak's announced. So, as you know on this show, we don't talk about coronavirus because we try and focus on the other political issues that might go under the radar. However, coronavirus has caused a massive global recession, and that has meant the Chancellor Rishi Sunak has had to pledge a lot of money to various things to try and grow the economy out of said recession. Now, one of the big announcements of his spending review was that the economy is expected to contract by 11.3% this year. Now, to put that into perspective, that's the largest fall since the Great Frost of 1709. So bigger than the Great Depression, bigger than the Great Recession of 12 years ago. This is absolutely huge. Unemployment is predicted to hit 7.5% in the spring. That's about 2.6 million people. They're going to be freezing uh, public sector pay for about 1.3 million people next year, uh, 2021-22. It's going to be huge role. Yes, and to put all of those figures into context, as you said, that economic contraction in one year is, is greater than anything well, in wars, in peace, whatever, for the last 300 years. Put that in perspective, in 2009, in the height of the financial crisis, I think UK GDP contracted by less than half that amount. I think something about 5 to 6%. So this is, you know, double that. Uh, the interesting figure, though, I think is unemployment, because unemployment hitting 7.5%, obviously that's a lot higher than we're used to. Current, you know, before the crisis, things were around 3 to 4%. But 7.5% unemployment, given the contraction of 11.3%, really isn't that big a hit for employment. And that's largely because of the extremely generous schemes that the UK has implemented, furlough, the self-employment scheme as well, which has really dampened massive job cuts as of yet. The public sector phrase, I mean, we were talking about this previously, Ollie, weren't we? It's as we're going to see as we whistle down all of the other measures of the budget, it's really the only kind of fiscally contraction measure, so that if you want to name it austerity measure, that is in this spending review, isn't it? Yeah, and it was interesting because in the days leading up to this, there were various leaks and reports saying that Rishi Sunak was going to introduce a wider pay freeze. 
And when it came to the actual day, we found out that that wouldn't include over a million NHS workers and those in the public sector currently earning under £24,000. So for them, they're still going to get an increase of at least £250 next year. And some people said, well, he read the, the media mood, he changed it based on that. Uh, that was his plan all along. We don't really know there, but... I think Labour also said, you know, what about the other key workers who have worked hard in this crisis who are still going to have their pay frozen? So we've got a clip here of Rishi Sunak announcing that. We will provide a pay rise to over a million nurses, doctors and others working in the NHS. Second, to protect jobs, pay rises in the rest of the public sector will be paused next year. But third, we will protect those on lower incomes. The 2.1 million public sector workers who earn below the median wage of £24,000 will be guaranteed a pay rise of at least £250. There were other stuff he announced as well. So, for example, the living wage is going to be increased to £8.91 an hour and the threshold for actually getting that, which used to be 25, is now going to be 23. Uh, there was some controversial stuff as well. So the foreign aid budget was cut by £4 billion. So currently the UK is legally mandated to 0.7% of national income to be spent on foreign aid. That's going to be reduced to 0.5%, which the government say is temporary. That is a really important measure that the government put in because that had quite a totemic value within the Conservative Party the 0.7% of GDP on foreign aid. It was one of those key headline measures put in by David Cameron in his attempts to modernise the party. And for at least the coalition government, it kind of had cross-party support, bar a small wing of Tories who were never really happy with the idea that foreign aid should be so big. That's now gone, and that's, I think, largely emblematic of the fact that, at least on cultural, social issues, the Tory party has swung in a very different direction to the Cameron Conservative Party. And that's borne out through a measure like this. It was always resented by many Tories and many Tory voters, especially, and it's been cut. Yeah, and it's really interesting you mentioned David Cameron there, because he rarely gives public statements or appearances about the current government. But he came out after this was announced and he said he, you know, he regretted it. He thought it was the wrong decision and he hoped it would be brought back. The government say it will be brought back if they can afford it. So that gives Which means them... it's not coming back, I would say. Potentially. We'll wait and see on that one. But we'll move on as well, because we mentioned uh, last week about the defence spending, which obviously is going to be huge, that we covered that. That's there as well. Um, there's going to be $4 billion extra for local infrastructure as part of what the government's been calling their levelling up programme, that thing Boris Johnson talks about in the intro to this podcast. Um, the 18 billion is being spent on vaccines, the tests, and all the PPE equipment to fight coronavirus next year, which 18 billion, just to put that into perspective, is huge. If we added up everything else in this spending review, you know, that'd be fairly equal. So that really puts into perspective just how much this pandemic has cost the government. There's going to be a health budget increase of 6 billion, uh, 4.6 billion for various work schemes, 2.2 billion more for schools. And just a word on all of those figures. I mean, you kind of said it in the 18 billion figure, which is going to go on vaccine tests and equipment next year. But it is truly staggering what we have spent this year as a country. 
our borrowing is going to be just shy of 400 billion pounds and a sizable portion of that has gone indirectly or directly to fighting COVID, directly in funding things like test and trace, which got tens of billions of pounds, funding vaccines, funding the testing scheme, buying PPE, but indirectly also on the massively costly furlough scheme, the self-employment scheme, the loans to businesses. This has been the most costly year. I mean, you, you, I do really feel sorry for, for Rishi Sunak because, you know, when coming into the job, he was thinking, oh, Brexit would have to be his most tricky issue to navigate he how would he have ever seen something as cataclysmic as not anything 300 years worth of british history could compare to in terms of finance so it really is um i do really feel sorry for him yeah i mean brexit wasn't even mentioned i mean that was annalisa dodds the shadow chancellor's big thing when she gave her statement she said where was brexit in all of this high spending will be required to counteract the economic impact of the transition period regardless of any deal i would imagine you know, because it's, it's never going to be the same as being in the common market. It's just not. So that will obviously be a big part of the economy over the next 10 years. But coronavirus has thrown that completely out of whack as well. There's going to be even more investment needed. We, we, we mentioned, you know, the only austerity light thing in here was the public sector pay freeze. And, you know, huge amounts have been spent on pandemic management, far more than other areas of the budget. But this is huge spending across the board. So I guess the big question here is, is this spending going to precede cuts later on? And this is what we were chatting before we went um, live. I don't think so, because I think the debate and the techniques to con uh, combat this crisis, this economic crisis, have fundamentally shifted. Listeners will remember in 2010, obviously the coalition government of the UK, took a very hard line on the public finances. The whole of their coming in was about the buzzwords of austerity and deficit, the idea that we were spending too much, we couldn't live within our means, we needed to control the deficit by mainly reducing spending and increasing taxes. And that was the argument that won the day. It was Gordon Brown who also signed up to that idea in running for the 2010 election. Ed Miliband, to a less extent than the Tories, did outline some areas of cuts as well. And it was only really until Jeremy Corbyn came into the forefront that that really changed. But change it did. And you would never hear a Tory politician talking about the deficit today, or certainly never using the word austerity. And that's because, I mean, I don't want to get too deep into economics terms here, but the way that we're financing our debt this time round is actually a lot more stable in the short term. Again, listeners will remember that the financial crisis in Europe was 2008-2010, but arguably the main story was not really the financial crisis, but the sovereign debt crisis that came after it, and that affected Italy, Spain, Portugal, Greece, very famously, Ireland, many, many countries, even though wobbles in France. So this time round, Britain's in the weird situation where even after the almost £400 billion we're expected to borrow this year, comes to pass, we will spend less money in this year servicing all of our debt than we did last year, when we had considerably less debt, and before coronavirus was a thing. Now, obviously, that sounds absolutely ludicrous. We've just borrowed 400 billion extra pounds. That's almost 20% of our economy, and we're paying less to service that debt than last year, and that's mainly because interest rates right now on government debt were already pretty low beforehand, but at rock bottom now, and not to get too complex, that's 
mainly due to the radical decisions taken by central bankers in the wake of this crisis to really keep those rates down. So for the time being, no one's going to mention about paying it back because it's not actually that big a priority. Yeah, I mean, especially because they've been saying UK debt will be 97.5% of GDP by 2026. But as you've just said, borrowing rates are at a historic low. So the whole idea of paying it off won't be the priority right now. So when the Shadow Chancellor Annalisa Dodds gave her counterstatement to Rishi Sunak, she accused him of wasting public money and said that his freeze of the public sector won't be helping key workers. And you can hear that here. Earlier this year, the Chancellor stood on his doorstep and clapped for key workers. Today, his government institutes a pay freeze for many of them. This takes a sledgehammer to consumer confidence. Firefighters, police officers and teachers will know their spending power is going down so they will spend less in our small businesses and on our high streets. They will spend less in our private sector. In its response to this pandemic, the Conservative government has wasted and mismanaged public finances on an industrial scale. That's Rishi Sunak's budget, that's Annalisa Dodds's response. Obviously, initially this sounds like a lot of money, but however this pans out over the next few years, you're definitely going to see a changing of approaches between the two parties, whether the Conservatives continue to spend large amounts, whether Labour continue to attack them on misuse of money, uh, accusations of not going far enough. So there's definitely going to be a shifting of political economic arguments, I think. Yes, and as, as I said previously, the Labour Party actually has kind of got to take credit for this. Under Jeremy Corbyn, the Tory party moved significantly more to the left on economic matters than was ever deemed possible under the coalition. They went more left-wing in economics measures in many regards, more left-wing than Ed Miliband was in 2015. So, to people who say Jeremy Corbyn wishes to blip and has not had an effect, arguably, actually, he's had a massive effect because he's changed radically the economically the economic policies of this country. All, all the while, obviously, not being elected while he did that, but he has definitely changed things, yeah. And I think that they're here to stay. Yeah, and speaking of another party who wants to change things, the Scottish National Party, the SNP, are currently holding their conference, and it's the last day today. In fact, as we're recording, Nicola Sturgeon is giving her keynote speech. Um, might mention what happens in that next episode. But there have been a few policy announcements from the SNP over the last few days. And the big one was that Nicola Sturgeon wants a second referendum on Scottish independence early in the next parliament. Because you would expect the SNP to win the Scottish elections next year. And even if they don't have a full majority, the Scottish Green Party can usually get them over the line on issues like independence because they're pro-independence as well. So if they do request... Uh, another referendum, whether or not Boris Johnson grants it, could have a huge impact on UK politics over the next 10 years. It could indeed. And Scottish independence, I mean, you know, polls are consistently now saying there is a majority for independence. And obviously, in the 2014 vote, a few years before that, when it was announced in 2011, 2012, you are seeing figures of something like a third of Scottish voters favouring independence. And obviously, that rose up to 45% on actual polling day. I think that any referendum campaign, if it went ahead, would only lead to an increase in independent support, not a decrease. So a real uphill battle on the fight of the UK government, I think, is, is in the brewing. 
Yeah, and obviously this comes after Boris Johnson's comments on devolution uh, last week. The SNP have also tried to take it to the Tories on certain issues, I think. So the whole idea about free school meals, uh, the whole Marcus Rashford campaign over the last couple of months was really damaging for the Conservatives. It was made them made them look like they were doing multiple U-turns. And the SNP have really jumped on this because they've announced at their conference that they're pledging free breakfast and lunches for all primary school pupils all year round if they're elected. Now, that just seems like they're trying to seize the national mood and take it to the Tories on an issue and almost show, you know, set out that they are different to how things are done in England. It's very true. And that's part of the wider kind of COVID divergence as well, I guess, of the four nations. And it's certainly going to dominate, I think, the political landscape once Brexit is done and once COVID is done, which is now not that long to go, really. So now let's move on to the international section. And this week we've had quite a staggering assassination. This is the assassination of the top Iranian nuclear scientist, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh. I'm not sure if I've pronounced that entirely correctly, but that's how his name should sound. In a suspected, although not confirmed, Israeli operation. We must stress that this is an alleged Israeli operation. We don't actually know who's done it, and no one has claimed responsibility. He was a key member of the Iranian's nuclear team, and he was killed in his car, basically, by gunmen. And... It has been alleged that there were, this was quite the operation, there were multiple killers, perhaps even a pair of snipers who formed part of a 60 plus group of plotters. And it's really a big set piece assassination. So who is responsible then? Because you mentioned Israel have been accused of doing it by certain people, but, you know, is there evidence for that at all? I mean, circumspect evidence, yes. I mean, the obvious candidate is Israel, or more specifically the Israeli intelligence agency Mossad. That's obviously because Israel has the most to lose from Iran gaining a nuclear weapon. In fact, the Israeli leader, Benjamin Netanyahu, about two years ago, he gave a very famous slideshow presentation is the best way to describe it, where he basically laid out all of the evidence that Israel collected that Iran was proceeding with its nuclear program and presented it in a slideshow presentation format to the world's press. And here's what he had to say back then two years ago. Just listen closely for what he says. Tonight, we are going to reveal new and conclusive proof of the secret nuclear weapons program that Iran has been hiding for years from the international community. A key part of the plan was to form new organizations to continue the work. This is how Dr. Mohsen Fakhizadeh, head of Project Ahmad, put it. Remember that name, Fakhizadeh. So there he clearly names the scientist in question, Mohsen. And he has been, you know, the, the statement that says, remember this name, he clearly places a lot of importance on the now deceased Mossen. Nonetheless, I don't think it's fair to put it at Israel's door as of yet. You know, it could have had US support. It could have had rogue Iranian elements as well. You've got to remember that it was the US who assassinated Qasem Soleimani, who's the head of the Quds force that was the international kind of arm of Iran's military forces early this year in January. It was the US who killed him in Iraq, not Israel. So 
the West have motive for this killing, as does Israel, as do various other actors. But as of yet, we're not certain of actually who did it. We don't have any evidence of who did it. So obviously one of Trump's big things over the last few years was pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal. And with an incoming Biden administration, this makes it very difficult for him to salvage that whatsoever. It makes it more tricky, certainly. I mean, the first thing we should say is that the killing of this one man won't drastically change Iran's nuclear possibilities or capabilities, just like killing Qasem Soleimani didn't radically change Iran's ability to influence its various proxy wars. Mark Fitzpatrick, who's an associate fellow with London's International Institute for Strategic Studies, and he follows the Iranian nuclear program quite closely. He also tweeted quite a present thing, I thought. Iran's nuclear program is long past the point when it is dependent on a single individual. And I think that really sums it up. The program will go on unchecked and the Biden administration will be looking to really re-engage with Iran, much as they did under Obama. But this certainly complicates matters. I mean, so what do you think Biden's policy on Iran will be then? Because this, as you say, muddies the waters quite a lot. So the biggest thing is that Biden has clearly stated he wants to return to the Iran nuclear deal. Now, this is the deal that the US, along with, it must be said, five other powers. This was a a multilateral effort. And those five powers were basically the UN Security Council five plus Germany, I believe. And that's some achievement. Even if you don't agree with the deal, it's quite an achievement to have all of your name, Russia's name, China's name on the same piece of paper all arguing for the same thing. Now, Biden does want to return to that. And Iran knows this, and they're obviously quite eager for that to happen. Sanctions have, although not stopped Iran's nuclear program, they have led to a very, very difficult time economically. There have also been other factors like faltering oil prices, but the sanctions in particular really hit Iran hard. However, that being said, Iran has self-evidently proved that it can survive the sanctions. It can throw whatever the West chucks at them and it will therefore play hardball it won't be a question of just economics but more of politics ideals this is an islamic theocratic state it doesn't act as a normal western democracy would think in terms of real politics so the iranians will be happy that the biden administration is coming in biden will try and engage with iran but it will be a lot more trickier than it was under obama in 2015 Okay, so going on the topic of Israel, in the months leading up to the US election, Donald Trump announced a number of peace deals that have been signed between Israel and various Middle Eastern countries. Now, there were reports last week that officials from Israel had met with officials from Saudi Arabia in secret meetings. So do we know if they actually happened or not? We're most certain that it did happen, yes. I mean... Citing unnamed Israeli sources, the Israeli public broadcaster Khan and other media earlier reported that Mr Netanyahu and the head of the Mossad intelligence service, Yossi Cohen, attended talks in Saudi Arabia in this very new Red Sea city, quite actually geographically close to Israel, called Neom, on Sunday evening with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Now, a senior Saudi advisor also told the Wall Street Journal that the leaders were there and they discussed several issues. Now, obviously, Saudi Arabia has officially denied this, but 
quite a if this all started when quite an intrepid Israeli journalist actually looked up how he found this out was he was looking at flight plans and he noticed that an Israeli private jet which is actually commonly associated with Benjamin Netanyahu it's believed that he owns it actually took a quite quiet secret flight from Israel to this Saudi city of Neom so it's fairly certain that he went obviously both sides are going to deny it I thought a quote from Israel's defense minister Benny Gantz who was as listeners will remember one of the key protagonists in the the almost year-long election squabble between Benjamin Netanyahu's party and the opposition, which is led by this man, Benny Gantz. He, he said he condemned the irresponsible leak of the secret flight to Saudi Arabia, thus obviously implying that there actually was a secret flight to Saudi Arabia. For Saudi Arabia, this is obviously a very touchy issue. They don't even recognise Israel's right to exist. So meeting officials from that country... And that being common knowledge is a quite a big step, even though it's been well documented for the last few years that there have been back channels open between the two countries, usually to cooperate against Iran. So how important do you think this will be then? Do you think we'll see some kind of thaw in relations between these two countries, you know, similar to what we've seen between the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, for example? There's two issues why I don't think this will be happening within the really short term, within the next month or so. And the first thing is the king. The king of Saudi Arabia is old school, shall we say. He's in his 80s. He has a conception of the Israelis that the vast majority of the Arab world has had for the vast majority of Israel's existence, in that it is an illegitimate state and they will not recognise it up until the point of which they conduct a peace deal which is accepted by the Palestinians leading to a Palestinian state. Now, obviously, in this alleged meeting between Israel and Saudi Arabia. It wasn't the king who was involved. It was Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, the man who we often talk about in relation to Saudi Arabia, who takes a different line. He's quite young. He's in his, I believe, 30s. And he is ostensibly has different views on Israel that are the norm of the traditional monarchy of Saudi Arabia, in that they do have a right to exist. Cooperation with them would be mutually beneficial, especially with Iran. And the second reason why this probably won't be happening quite quickly is that the Saudis reportedly, and I stress reportedly, want to delay a deal because they're going to have a bit more of a tougher time with the Biden administration. And conducting a deal under the Biden administration would really warm them or ingratiate themselves to the incoming administration. Right then. So Joe Biden, who has just fractured his foot, apparently, um, will be becoming president in January. So... How will his administration change U.S. policy in the region? Well, the first thing is that he's not going to take a hard line like Trump is. He clearly understands that it's much more likely that Iran won't come to a nuclear bomb if they have detente, if they have conciliation and if they have dialogue with Iran, much under the same guise of thought of Obama. Obviously, Republicans disagree quite strongly with that line. Now, Israel and Saudi Arabia don't like this. Their main enemy in the region is not each other, but it's Iran. Saudi Arabia, because Iran professes another rival sect of Islam, obviously Iran being Shiite and Saudi Arabia being Sunni, and Israel because Iran repeatedly threatens to blow Israel off the map. So both of them really, really don't like the idea of the US administration going a bit softer on Iran. Biden has also been a lot more critical 
of the Saudis due to their war in Yemen, due to the killing of the journalist Hamal Shoghi, which we'll all remember that happened about two years ago now and was really a big event. He's also been critical of Israeli moves that have been rubber stamped by the Trump administration, such as plans to annex the Jordan Valley and the West Bank and moving embassies of the US to Jerusalem. Although it is important to note that Biden won't reverse the embassy moving. Now, the key is the US is the dominant power here. It holds the whip hand, so to speak. So Biden ostensibly should get his way in 2015. Obama did the deal with Iran and both Israel and Saudi Arabia weren't too happy. But the deal was done. Why? Because the US, even with all of this talk of the decline of the American hegemony, is still the big boss in the region, especially when it comes to Israel and Saudi Arabia. However, the Saudis and Israelis will seek to moderate this as much as possible. They still want to make sure that that Iran does not get a nuclear bomb and they want to maintain a harsh line. And to a certain extent, they will have some effect. The US can't act alone in this region. It does need to listen to Israel and to Saudi Arabia. Okay, then, so we'll keep a track on that. If any deal is done, we will let you know. But moving on from stuff we reported on, sorry, moving on to things we talked about last week, is there an update on the situation in Ethiopia? There is and there isn't. I mean, again, we were chatting before this. we went to air that for the past few weeks as this terrible conflict has been going on, it's kind of been a game of saying the exact same thing just repeatedly, that uh, we have this statement from the Ethiopians, we have this statement from the Tigrayans, and we don't really know what's going on because there's a total communications blackout in the area. And that's basically what's happened this week. On Saturday... The Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Abiy Ahmed, said the government troops had taken the Tigrayan capital, Mekele. The Tigrayans deny this. There have been reports that the main hospital in Mekele dangerously low on supplies as it treats the wounded and fighting from around the city. That's from the Red Cross. And the government have now claimed that they've taken the capital of the rebel zone. They're now underway in, in launching a manhunt for the rebel leaders. We don't really know if this is true. There is clearly a lot of evidence that says that the Ethiopian troops have advanced massively, but have they actually taken the town or haven't they actually taken the town? We don't really know. I mean, if they have taken the town, you assume that's nearly the end of things over there, but I imagine the, the, the people they're fighting aren't going to give up too easily. No, and the TPLF, and our listeners will remember, that's the... Tigrayan regional party that controls Tigray and is quite anti-government or anti-Ethiopian federal government I should say they have pledged to continue fighting no matter what and it's it's useful here to remember both Ethiopia's geography and its history Ethiopia is a very inaccessible country its highlands which stretch into Tigray it should be said are vast and quite difficult terrain they are perfect for maintaining a guerrilla war, which is what happened largely during the almost 20-year civil war that engulfed Ethiopia between the 70s and the early 90s. So even if the Ethiopian federal forces do successfully defeat the TPLF forces on the field of battle, a guerrilla war could be sparked. And that could rage for many, many years, as the civil war did. So, because these grievances aren't going away, the TPLF is still very, very, very anti-federal government. And the federal government has its 
a real task on this hands because it's not got to deal with just the Tigrayans who have a separatist movement, but also the Amharas, the Oromians. There's lots of different groups, Somalis within um, Ethiopia. It's not a nation state like England or France or Germany is, which has one people who identify culturally with one sort of being. It's not like that. And that means it'll always be predisposed to these sorts of conflicts. That's complicated stuff, and we'll keep everyone updated on the conflict as it goes along. But until then, that's the end of the show. I've really hoped you enjoy it. Hopefully by next week, we might have some updates on Brexit negotiations for you. They seem to be coming to a close now. We're hoping something will be announced very soon. But until then, have a lovely week, and we'll see you next time.